Well, the passage this morning can be found in Revelation chapter 22. It's printed in your bulletins or you could follow along in your own Bibles. Revelation chapter 22. While you're finding it, let me just tell you, you might be wondering, where are we going after this? This is the last chapter of Revelation. Uh, for the summer, we'll be doing 12 weeks in select- a selection of Psalms, looking at the characteristics of God. And then beginning in the fall, we're going through the book of Romans. And it will be a whole year in the book of Romans. So yeah, some churches go through Romans in five weeks. Some go through it in five years. We're going to do it in one year. Well, the whole school year. So that will begin in the fall. You can look forward to that. You can begin reading the book of Romans as we prepare to work through that together. But today we conclude the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brother, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, but the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this book, the book of Revelation. We thank you that you have given this to your son Jesus to be delivered to the Apostle John then to be delivered to the churches in Asia Minor, to be preserved for us, your people. We ask this morning, as we look together at your word, that you would give us 
eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that having eyes to see and ears to hear, that our hearts might be changed, that we might be drawn to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might cast our hopes, longings, and burdens upon you, and that you, O Lord God, might sustain and continue to uphold us, your people. We love you. We thank you, especially for your Son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we finish up the book of Revelation this morning, I want to focus simply on one important theme, and that is, what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? What, after reading for five or six months now, after reading this book of Revelation, what is the purpose of the book that has been delivered to us, the one that we've just finished reading? I would say to you, I think it is really a two-part purpose. God delivers the book of Revelation to the church to, first of all, comfort us, and second of all, to stir our affections, okay? To stir our affections, that is to make us yearn for or long for or to desire the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about those two purposes, it's actually ironic because of the way that the modern church reads the book of Revelation. The modern church reads the book of Revelation with a lot of fear and trepidation, okay? As if we're fearful for these things to unfold. But as a matter of fact, the theme of this book is actually the very opposite. It is meant to comfort us and to draw us in a sense of yearning to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What does it look like to yearn for Christ? What does it look like to long for His return, to desire Him so deeply in our being that it it moves us? It's the very thing, actually, that is summarized at the end of this book by John's words. These are his parting words. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And those words are not meant to be really like, come, Lord Jesus, or come, Lord Jesus, but, but rather they're meant to be read, come, Lord Jesus. The Greek is very helpful in this way. The Greek has a tense and a voice and a mood, and, and this phrase is written in the present middle imperative voice. It is meant to be communicated to us with a sense of exuberance and expectation. Okay, that's where the, the nature of this longing comes from. It's why the English has an exclamation point at the end of the sentence, okay? Come, Lord Jesus, Come. That's what John is communicating at the end of this book. Now, here's the simple question I want to ask this morning. Why, for the church, for the Christian church, why should our disposition be, come, Lord Jesus? Why should we long for his return? Why should we yearn for it? I'm just going to break it really into two different parts this morning, okay? We should yearn for the Lord Jesus because there's an implicit problem in this world. We're going to talk about the implicit problem. And then we should yearn for the Lord Jesus because there is an explicit solution that is presented to us in God's Word. And it is clear and obvious, the solution that God has given to us. So first of all, the implicit problem that exists in this world. I want to to introduce that idea to you with a little bit of a story, okay? A little bit of a story. Um, A few years ago, when we bought our house, there was this addition on the side of the house. It was like 15 by 30 feet 450 square feet 
uh, in this addition. And when we bought the house, we knew from the very beginning that this addition was going to have to be torn down, okay? It was terrible in every way. It was a dysfunctional addition. There was no really obvious purpose for it, and the foundation was crumbling, and, and everything was bad about it. And so we knew from the beginning we were going to have to tear this thing down. Easier said than done. So after a few years of not actually tearing down what we thought we were going to tear down, we eventually got to it this past summer. And we had a whole week that we knew we had to set aside for tearing down the house. So it was going to be a, a family endeavor. All four of us, me, my wife, and our two children, we're going to tear down this addition. It's going to take all week. And so we started from the top down, and we ripped off the shingles, and, and then the plywood, and the rafters, and we worked our way into the building. And, and day two or day three, we started to tear out the drywall, and the insulation, and the flooring. And we got to the point where we're just about ready to knock down the walls. And this was going to be a, a, the monumental, you know, crowning achievement of all the work we had done. And so my wife said, hold on, let me record this, okay? So... She set up the phone, I think to post it to Instagram or Facebook or something, and set up the phone, and, and so we got ready to tear down the wall, and I said, okay, let me go get my sledgehammer, and we're looking all around for the 20-pound sledgehammer. We can't find it anywhere. I'm not sure if I had misplaced it or lost it. Okay, but plan B, we're going to push the wall down. So the four of us line up, being recorded on video, and we begin to push this wall, and it's wobbling back and forth, and it's you know, to and fro, and the wall's about to come down, and then just behind us, we hear this loud, Boom! behind us, not in front of us, okay? And we all stop pushing the wall, we turn around, and there on the ground is the 20-pound sledgehammer. It wasn't there before. And so we all look at each other like, where did the sledgehammer come from? How did it get there? And then we thought, well, we we're recording this. Let's go look and see where the sledgehammer came from. Apparently, I had left the sledgehammer up on top of the wall. I didn't realize it, right? And we go back and we, we watch the video, and as the wall's swinging back and forth, the sledgehammer comes flying off, and it goes right past Naomi's head. I mean, just within inches of her head, the 20-pound sledgehammer. At that moment, we are thinking, well, thank God for protecting our children, yeah, even when we're unaware of the dangers that are lurking. But I, I also think this is a really good illustration or object lesson as we think about the implicit problem in this world. You see, as we begin in Genesis 3, talking about sin, when sin enters the world, here's the problem with sin, and we continue to see it throughout the history of redemption, the history of humanity. Sin is so lethal and dangerous, like bludgeoning over the head, but it is hidden, and it's quiet, and lurking, and we're sort of unaware of the dangers of sin. That's obvious from the garden, right? Uh, one, one Puritan, one of my f favorite Puritans, Thomas Brooks, he described it like this. He said, it is where Satan is working in the garden to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and to hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin, but by hiding from the soul the wrath and the misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device, Satan took our first parents, giving them an apple in exchange for a paradise. See, that's the, that's the danger of sin, and that's where I want to begin this morning. Okay, as we think about the story that has unfolded in Revelation, and we think about the implicit problem that's being addressed in Revelation, I will tell you that it begins in the garden, okay? This is my tree of life. Ah, oh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, actually. It begins in the garden, okay? And the, the problem is very simple. It is, the, it is the subtlety of sin. Even after Adam and Eve fall into sin, do you realize that they're unaware of what has just happened? 
It's, it's not as if we read Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve say, whoa, what have we just done? We need to repent of the thing that we've just done. They have no idea, right? And as they fall into sin, they are on their merry way, right? Living life. They're going to go make uh, clothes for themselves, and they're going to live in this new idolatrous life. They've fallen into sin, and they are completely satisfied with it. They have no inclination or understanding of the danger that has just fallen upon them, that death has entered the world, and if they continue in this state, they will be dead for eternity. It's not obvious to them at all, okay? But there's a second thing that happens in the garden that couples together with this to create the implicit problem in creation. You see, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, yeah, their hearts are mired in sin, but they still have this created desire for goodness. They still want goodness and satisfaction and hope and pleasure, and all the things that God has created them or oriented them to, okay? And so what happens in the garden? How do we see this? In the garden, it's very simple. Adam and Eve fall into sin. Their hearts are now uh, mired in that sin. Death has entered the world, and almost immediately, the inclination of their hearts is to go and eat from the tree of life, okay? The tree of life. Well, it's the tree that gives life. Of course, we want life. That's a good thing. We want that, okay? And, and God moves almost immediately to prevent them from taking from the tree of life lest they eat and live forever in a state of destruction and death. That would be very bad for them. But beginning at the garden, there is a desire in the garden going forward that all of humanity has for goodness, pleasure, satisfaction, hope, beauty, all of the good things that you can imagine to have those things apart from God, okay? So the garden is a story of wanting goodness apart from a good God. That's what's happening in the garden. They want goodness apart from a good God. I would summarize it to you like this. The human condition, the human problem is that we want salvation without a Savior, okay? Salvation without a Savior, that, that's the story of humanity. And if you want the proof of it, just think of uh, the unfolding of the Old Testament. So here's how we go through the Old Testament. Think of the highlights. You go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. What happens in Genesis 4? I'm going to draw a picture of two brothers, and I'm sure that will remind you of what happens in Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And what happens with Cain and Abel? Cain desires power over life without the giver of life. That's really what he wants. He wants to determine the outcomes of his own life, and when he cannot, he exercises the power he thinks he has over his brother Abel. And so this is the desiring the power over life without ever submitting to or wanting the actual giver of life. You keep going on in the story of the Old Testament. Well, next highlight, let's say Genesis 11. Whenever I draw the Tower of Babel, it looks like the Leaning Tower of Pisa usually. So um, if you see the Tower of Pisa, I mean the Tower of Babel. What happens at the Tower of Babel? At the Tower of Babel, all humanity comes together and they say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Every generation from this point forward will know that we're the ones who have done this great thing, Okay. Their desire is for fame and prosperity, okay, good things, I get it, prosperity is a great thing, apart from the everlasting God. They want nothing to do with him. They do want the good things that have come in the creation. They desire those things, but they want them apart from God. 
Genesis 19. Okay, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. When I think of Sodom and Gomorrah, I just draw a city, okay, the city that was destroyed by God. And if you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the desire of the people for physical gratification. They knew what they wanted in their lives, and they were going to get it. And they had adulterated the created order. There's a, a sort of sexual revolution that's described as happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they wanted that apart from the God of love. The God who promises to commune with his people. Okay? And so this, this story revolves around good things like love and intimacy. But, but those things are abused and changed because they desire them apart from the living God. This is a story that unfolds in all of creation. This is the reason why the book of Revelation presents to us Jesus Christ, because Christ is compared in the book of Revelation to all the things of this world, the things that we think give hope, the things that we think give life, the things that we think bring beauty, the things that we believe will give us satisfaction, that Christ Jesus is compared to these things. You know, as a matter of fact, as you think about this this passage in Revelation, you probably notice that, that Jesus goes out of his way to authenticate the message. Did you see that? I'll just give you a few verses. Verse 6, he says this message is trustworthy and true, okay? The message is trustworthy and true. Uh, in verse 8, I, John, am the one who have heard and seen these things, okay? It's a, a message of authentication. Verse 10 uh, do not seal up the words of this letter. That's directly being compared to Daniel chapter 12. You, we read it this morning. God gave Daniel a vision. And he said, seal these things up. The day is not near. Seal up the letter. In Revelation, do not seal up the letter. Let this be open, okay? And then uh, let's say verse 16, I believe it is. It's verse 16 where Jesus says, I have sent these things to you. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. You see what the purpose of all this, this message of authentication is? Jesus is making it clear to us that, that the hope that he offers is not like these, okay? It's not like the things that you've experienced in this world that you think give hope, but they only leave you empty. Rather, this is the authentic, genuine, real message of hope and salvation. Directly from the mouth of Christ, delivered through an angel, to the Apostle John, for you, these words are trustworthy and true. That's why, if you want to continue with that theme, that's why in verse 18, he says, if anyone adds to this message, the plagues of this book will be added to him. And if anyone takes away from this message, his inheritance in the new kingdom and the tree of life will be taken from him. For anyone who even remotely believes that, that there's a God, that should be a fearful thing, right? It should be a fearful thing. Why so severe and serious in his warning? It's because the message, the authentic message of genuine hope in Jesus Christ is being presented by God that we might not mix it up, might not miss that this is different. This is real. This is genuine. And if you, if you trace the message of the gospel throughout the history of the church and the history of the world, you will find many ways that people have messed this up. That the message has been adulterated, it's been added to, it's been taken away from. It has been convoluted or mixed up with the things of this world. 
But you can look around you. The examples are all around us of the message of hope that has been changed, amended by people who think they're making it better or making it clearer or making it more perfect. But we find that's not the message of hope. The message of hope is the explicit solution that's presented in this book, okay? So this is the implicit problem in creation. It begins with sin, but it's married together with this idea that we've been created to desire goodness. And, and we want that in this world, but God thankfully, what does it say in Romans 8.28? It says that he subjected the creation to futility and hope. Okay, you remember that from Ecclesiastes. He subjected the creation to futility and hope. That means that God intentionally altered or broke the creation so that we would not be satisfied with the hopes of this world. Okay, that was God moving on our behalf. Now let me just tell you, this, this dynamic can explain so much of of everything that happens in our lives. You think about all the social movements, all the social movements, whether they over the last five, 10, 20 years or social movements over the history of this country, social movements are so well known for offering salvation without a savior, right? We hear this message, whether it be from political candidates or, or people who want us to buy into their message, and it sounds like a message that is too good to be true because it offers the hope that we know we can't find in this world. It's a message of salvation without a savior. I was thinking about the things that we've created, the things that we've made in this world. You think about social media, right? Social media was like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was like this crowning achievement that's gonna tie us all together and we're gonna be able to see pictures from our high school friends and, and they're gonna be able to see babies that are born and we can like or dislike, how cool is that, right? And we thought this was gonna solve all these great problems and I, I'm sure you hear these commercials on the radio about the connections between social media and like teenage suicide rates. And we, we thought we, how great we are, we've solved this great problem and then we realize the damage that we've done. You know, hope, beauty, perfection. Uh, I've been reading a lot about artificial intelligence. I'm sure you've seen the articles that are going around. I'm trying to stay ahead of the curve to write about and to be able to speak about for, for the sake of the church. And so I've been listening to the Senate hearings and what's going on in the European Union and the, the, the professionals who are writing and developing artificial intelligence. And you know what I've been hearing a lot of? It's, it boggles my mind. It's a lot of salvation language. I don't, I don't know if you heard this. I heard it. Somebody last week used these words. A new glorious day is dawning. And I thought, whoa. It's like you lifted it right out of the Bible, okay? It's the message of hope and salvation, but it's being applied to the things of this world, the things that leave us empty and wanting, okay? So that's the implicit problem. Uh, that's why we ought to yearn for Jesus, because this is, this is the world we live in. We should long for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not all. Not only is there an implicit problem, uh, in this book is presented to us the explicit solution. Let me just put the cross right in the middle here. Okay, the book of Revelation, I, I hope you've seen it, has been a book that has presented to us Jesus and then has compared him to all the vain things of this world. And whether those were in images of Babylon the prostitute, or the first beast, or the second beast, or the serpent, or all the, the, the bad things that we've seen in Revelation that are so slick and, and cool, and they, they appear like they're going to give life, but they only take it. Over and over again, we have seen the message of hope in Jesus Christ in comparison to all the empty 
pathetic, vain hopes of this world, okay? And, and that's what has been presented to us. Now, let me, let me introduce this portion here with another story, all right? When my wife and I were first married um, many years ago, um, when we started our life together, we were relatively poor, okay? And, and not probably poor, poor, but we certainly... Uh, weren't wealthy. We didn't have a lot. And so in those first few years of marriage, we had a, a generous family on both sides who would, who would give us things. And it was, it was really nice. It was helpful to us. And among the things that were given to us, um, there were my first two cars that I drove were either given to us or deeply discounted. We, I know that they lost money on them, but they, they did that for us, okay? And one of those first two cars was a green Volkswagen Cabriolet, all right? And if you know anything about Volkswagen Cabriolets, they, they don't fit my personality, first of all, okay? A little sporty car. <laughs> Doesn't quite fit me well, but it was, it was given to me, and it got from point A to point B. And when it was given to me, it came with a number of problems. So it had a convertible top, but it was broken, so it was stuck down. Uh, there was no air conditioning in the car, and the windows were broken as well, okay? So they didn't work. The driver's side window, when I received it, was actually broken down, and so I thought, it's the middle of the summer, this is great, I'll just keep the window open. And so I drove that car around for a while until I realized that when it rained, the seat got really wet, all right? So I would drive in the car, and wherever I was going, I'd show up with a wet butt. It was just, it was terrible, and it created this sort of micro-ecosystem in the car. It got foggy inside there, and there's condensation on the inside of the windows. It was terrible. So eventually, I, I took it to the mechanic, and I asked if they could fix the door, and so... Um, when they looked at the, the door, they came back to me and they said, well, we could fix it, but it's going to be very costly. You see, you, you know, the, not only do we got to fix the mechanisms in here, but because you let the rain get in so many times, it's ruined the electronics, and uh, the, basically the whole door panel is going to have to be replaced. And so, as I told you, uh, we didn't have much money, so I said, I'm not going to pay this. I can't pay this for this door. I'm going to fix it myself. All right? I did. Um, and... Uh, so not knowing a thing about automobiles, I can't change the oil in my car. I have no concept of how to do it. Um, I took off the inside of the door panel. I looked at the window for a number of hours, uh, eventually realized I couldn't fix it, and I decided what I was going to do was this. I was going to lift up the window, put the panel back on, and screw a two-by-four block from one side to the other to hold the window up. And it worked. It worked. Uh, it definitely looked like a redneck version of a little sports car, um, but that was okay, it worked. Only thing I realized a few weeks down the road was um, in the middle of the summer, if you can't put the top down, you can't turn the air on, you can't lower the windows, uh, the, the car becomes like a sauna really quick, okay? So about a month later, we got the car fixed, all right? Went, went and got the car done right. It illustrates a very important point to me, okay? The explicit solution is presented to us in the book of Revelation, but it, it is human nature right, to look for all the other options, okay? It, it's, it is human nature. Though Christ is clearly presented to us in the book of Revelation, it is human nature to look for all the other options, to let our eyes wander a bit, to wonder if this is actually the answer. This is the answer. It is presented to us in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, the one who saves and gives life. Those things are presented to us beginning in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to eat the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. 
outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Look at all the beautiful descriptions of Jesus. And the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. These pictures have been all throughout the book, and we don't have time to talk about each of them, but they just they present to us Christ, the beginning and the end, the one who came before us, who offers salvation, who has gone on our behalf, suffered the wrath of God, purchased redemption for us on our behalf. The description of the people in verse 14, blessed are those who have washed their robes. You remember the only other place this is ever mentioned in the Bible? People have washed their robes? There's only one other mention. It's in Revelation 7. I hope you remember. It was like 14 chapters ago. Okay? Revelation 7. As we're looking at the people of God, they are described by Jesus as those who have washed their robes, not in a washing machine and not washed by hand. They've washed their robes by the blood of Christ. Okay? Revelation 7 connects us to Revelation 14. These are not simply people who have washed their robes. They've washed them in the blood of Christ. They've been covered by the blood of Christ and purchased for redemption by him through his blood and through his body. Look at the description that he gives of these people in verse 17. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty say, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. This description is beautiful, okay? Let the one who hears the word of God say, come, Lord Jesus. Let the one who's thirsty, and you probably recognize that that's not like you physically need a drink, all right? It's the, it's the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. Remember that? They're fetching water, and he's speaking to her about living water, and he says, woman, uh, uh, he who drinks from this well will thirst again. But the, the, the thirst that he speaks about there and carries forward into the book of Revelation is an internal thirst. It's an internal hunger. It's a dissatisfaction with the things of this world and a desiring for something more, a desiring for something better. In verse 16, Jesus describes those who say, come, it's the church, he says, in verse 17, he says it's the bride, the bride and the spirit together. They say, come, the bride of Christ being the church. You see, the picture that's being painted here is of the people of God, those who hear his word, those who have been washed, who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ, the church, the bride, those who hear, those who are thirsty, longing to be satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ are those, as it says in verse 17, who will eat from the tree, the tree of life. Those who will enter the city by the gates. And last week we talked about the tree and the city. These beautiful pictures of eternal satisfaction when we are joined together with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This is the explicit solution given to those who hear, those who thirst, those who hunger, those who desire for something more. Those who wash their robes in the blood of Christ. Okay? The explicit solution is Jesus Christ. 
as he's presented in, in this book to us as the bright morning star, the Alpha and the Omega, the root, the descendant of David, the only actual solution for the brokenness of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I think that's why the ending of this book is so abrupt. Uh, did you notice that? The ending of this book is one line in verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And if you, if you do a comparison, this is the most short, most abrupt ending of all the New Testament letters, okay? I mean, there's no epilogue. There's no words of thanks. There's no people who are mentioned. There's no final instructions. There is nothing from John other than the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Ten words. And it's actually nine words in the Greek. Nine words to end the entire book of Revelation. Isn't that wild? You know why? I think, I think it's an abrupt ending at the end of Revelation so that we don't lose sight of what we just heard. So that we don't get distracted from the message that has just been presented to us. The Lord Jesus Christ, come Lord Jesus, come. Because you, you know when you read, like you read the book of Romans, you get to the last chapter of Romans, it's a whole list of people that Paul gives thanksgiving for and then a bunch of commendations and when you get done reading the book of Romans, you say, what? I forget what we learned in Romans, okay? I just had a whole list of people. And what did we talk about in chapter 14? What happened in chapter 12? I don't know. I just, the, the ending was so full and so vibrant that I forgot. We, we won't forget in Revelation, okay? Nine words that don't distract us from the message. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me ask you this final question here. Why don't we long for the coming of the Lord Jesus? I mean, why? you don't have to necessarily say these words. I think they're helpful words. Come, Lord Jesus. But why don't we, why do we struggle with this idea of yearning for the coming of Christ? Of, of longing for it? I, I, I think there's a, a variety of reasons. I, I've encountered a, a number of people well, I'll say this. I think to summarize, I do believe it's either we don't understand the goodness of Christ or we don't understand the pathetic vanity of the things of this world. One of those two things is true, and usually it's probably both, okay? And some people will say, you know, I do want Jesus to come again. I do want that, but I want it in like 20 years, okay? You might, you might be laughing because you've said that. I've heard that said. I might have said that myself a few times. And, and, and what people say is, you know, come Lord Jesus, but man, I'm really enjoying this time with my children. Just let me, just let me have this, you know, 10 years with my children. Then come Lord Jesus. I have just graduated from college. Let me just get into a career for a little while. Then come Lord Jesus. I want to get married. And when I get married, then, after a few years of good marriage, come Lord Jesus. I got my hobbies, or I got my life, the things I want to pursue. You... You're smiling because you've probably thought that before, okay? The reality of those words or that disposition of our heart is that we have a ho-hum interpretation of the coming of the Lord Jesus, and we still have an existential hope in the things of this world, right? The potential for the things of this world to really, truly satisfy us. If we understood the gravity of what it means to be with the Lord Jesus, we would never think like that. That idea would be gone. It would never, it would be a, a fleeting thought in our mind. You know, other people 
I think, reading the book of Revelation wrongly, they think, I don't want Jesus to come back. And their expectations were that when, when Christ returns, he brings with him lots of bad things, okay? But, but why would John conclude his letter calling out for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Why would he want that? Jesus comes to bring life. He comes to bring eternal life and satisfaction and hope and beauty and splendor, more than you can ever fathom or imagine. And if we don't, if, if our mindset is not come Lord Jesus, either we don't understand his goodness, or we don't understand the, the vanity of the things of this world. Together, church, we ought to confess, come Lord Jesus, come, come quickly. And not just in the bad moments, okay? Though that is fitting. When life is miserable, it is good for us to say, come Lord Jesus. We should say, come Lord Jesus in the joyful moments. Come Lord Jesus because we know you bring even more joy than we're experiencing at this very moment. Come, Lord Jesus, when we experience conflict, because he comes to bring an end to conflict. Come, Lord Jesus, when we experience death, for he has swallowed up death. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, on Memorial Day weekend, because he brings real, true, lasting, eternal freedom. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You know what the evidence of this in your life will be? If this is your mindset, if you're eagerly longing for the coming of the Lord Jesus, this is what you'll begin to see in your life. You won't want to leave church. Because this is the place where we talk about him, right? This is where we sing about him, is where we pray to him. I mean, this will be like the celebration each week of like the expectation of the coming of Jesus, okay? And you'll want to hear more preaching from his word, and you want to read it more, and you want to sing with the saints, and you'll desire to pray together. And you'll look around you at your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you'll say, how can I help you? How can I be a picture for you of the coming of Jesus and what it will be like? And we will hate our sin, and we will desire righteousness, and we will cling to him as our only hope, and we will, we will desire him in our lives and in our homes, and we will speak about him, we'll have conversations about him, and we won't be able to stop talking about Christ because our hearts will say, come, Lord Jesus, come. This is the message of the book of Revelation. This is what has been delivered to us as our only perfect, final, future hope. And so this book ends, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and your revelation to us, but we thank you most importantly for your son, Jesus Christ. How can we miss? How can we be confused over or have any inclination other than to see Christ as our only hope in life and death? And how can we not knowing that yearn for his return? Long for it, seek after it, desire it, and look forward to that day when Christ returns again. For he is coming again, and we know our Lord and our God that he brings with him good things. And we will be eternally satisfied. What could be better? 
And so we ask our Father that you would work in our hearts and minds to give us only a vision for your Son, Jesus. That you would change our hearts, and by changing our hearts, you would change the habits and the actions of our lives. That our hearts would overflow with expectation. That everyone around us who comes into contact with us might see that we wait for that day. And we look to a Savior who has gone before us and has given his life that we might be redeemed. Hallelujah. We thank you, our Father. We thank you, Spirit, who is at work here. We thank you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It's in your name we ask all of these things. Amen.